0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast?
0: everyone i'm michael Calori. i'm an editor here at wired and you're listening to the gadget lab the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets apps and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives i am joined as always by my co-hosts senior associate editor ariel Pardes. hey hey and senior writer lauren good
2: hello And later in the show, Emma Gray-Ellis from our culture desk is going to be joining us to talk about the beauty wars on YouTube. Mm. She wrote a fascinating story for Wired this week about this. It involves vitamins. It involves
3: feuds. It involves cancel culture. It's great. (laughs) It really is very good. I learned so much from reading this story. This probably would be a great opportunity to plug our flash sales of lip gloss, right? Since I'm convinced that's the future of journalism. That's how we're gonna make money, guys. Flash sales, lip gloss, beauty influence.
0: Sounds like a pretty strong affiliate play.
3: You can now get Wired's <laughs> Lip Kit for $5. And it comes with a prescription. Uh, prescription. Darn it, I messed that one up. It comes with a subscription.
0: Yeah. And a YubiKey. And some socks. Ooh,
3: what if we like put lip gloss in the YubiKey?
0: Now there is a mashup that I can get behind. <laughs> All right. Well, we're very excited to have Emma on the show. Uh, But first, let's do uh, some quick news updates from the week. I'll go first. Um, On Monday of this week, a new vulnerability surfaced in WhatsApp that could allow a hacker to inject malware into a targeted phone and steal data from that phone simply by calling them. This is weird. The attack exploits the way that WhatsApp handles incoming VoIP calls. That's voice over IP. So like when you call your friend on WhatsApp, you're not actually making a call over cellular cellular networks. You're making a phone call over the internet and your voice is going across IP addresses. So when a call comes in over WhatsApp, There are a lot of things going on that the app has to deal with. There's the end-to-end encryption that WhatsApp uses. There are are various types of user decisions that have to happen, like the person can choose to pick up the call or decline the call. So all of that complexity that happens when you ring somebody's phone on WhatsApp uh, is gives the attacker a way to instigate what is called a buffer overflow attack. And it makes that easier. Like the more information that the app has to deal with at any one time, the easier it is to attack that app. Uh, Buffer overflow is a very common type of attack. We see it a lot. But what's unique about this one is that according to the Financial Times, which reported this on Monday, uh, the notorious Israeli spy firm, the NSO Group, is behind this attack. Uh, This organization is known for collecting various methods of breaking into devices and then holding on to them to go after people that they are uh, that the Israeli government is targeting or, you know, any government that the NSO group is working with. Um, Now, you can download a patch that fixes the problem. So if you have WhatsApp on your Android phone or your iOS device, you should definitely make sure you update it, although it's probably really only being used to target a small number of high profile activists and political dissidents so not you and i but still always better to have the most recent version of the app that has all the best security patches on it
3: it's reassuring that you're not worried you personally I mean don't they know who you are
0: they do but uh, my phone auto updates like every night so
3: okay so, I mean, they know, like, the millions and millions of dollars you have stored in offshore accounts. and no,
0: Bitcoin. That you're, yeah.
3: Excuse me, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I would think that you'd be a high profile attorney. Arielle over here is a political dissident.
0: Yes, she is. So,
3: I don't know. Well, you know, I wish you guys the best of luck.
0: You know, the, the weird thing about this is that um, apparently the way that it works is somebody could have done this attack on you without you ever really knowing it. Like, your phone wouldn't appear to be ringing and it wouldn't, mm-hmm. the call wouldn't show up in the log. So that's the thing that's really bizarre. And like buffer overflow attacks allow this sort of thing to happen. They're extraordinarily common, like almost, well, I wouldn't say almost all, but a great number of the bugs that you hear about are buffer overflow attacks. So it's kind of weird that it happened to uh, the application that billions of people use to talk to each other, but that's the way it is these days.
3: And Lily wrote about it for us as well.
0: She did. So definitely we'll put this in the show notes, but definitely read Lily Hay Newman's story about this uh, on Wired.
3: All right. In other news, you know that we couldn't get by an entire week or two without talking about Facebook. At some point, uh, Facebook said earlier this week it was going to roll out stricter rules around abuses of Facebook Live, which is the company's live streaming video service. Uh, Sadly, this comes a couple months after the mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, during which a gunman live streamed the horrific attack on Facebook Live. So Facebook has now said that people who break the company's most serious policies, without getting too specific around these policies, will be banned from using Facebook Live for 30 days, and the company pointed to current community standards as a kind of guidepost for what might ultimately cross the line. There was also an announcement, a push I should say, by New Zealand and France uh, to encourage country, a bunch of countries and tech companies to work together to try to basically keep propagandist and extremist content online from spreading. All this is like, unfortunately, it's part of the ills of the internet that we are experiencing these days. I mean, the mass shooting is a horrific event in its own right, but then what happened immediately in the aftermath of that was that the video was spread like, it just spread like wildfire on Facebook, Uh, and in the 24 hours after the attack, Facebook had to scramble to remove I think one and a half million videos mm-hmm. around the attack. The, the larger problem is that these kinds of events are now occurring in our societies. But then on the other side of it, you have social platforms where things are spreading really quickly and companies are supposed to take some responsibility for monitoring the content that's going up on their site and then taking really abusive stuff down. Uh-huh. And Facebook has been criticized uh, for its role basically in this deadly attack.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there's not a whole lot of preventative medicine going on at Facebook in terms of dealing with these things before they happen or trying to control sort of what's what's on the platform um, before they have to sort of deal with the aftermath of a tragedy. Well, if you spend a lot of time on Facebook or on Twitter, you very likely have seen posts from President Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Uh, the man has a contentious relationship with social media. I'll say that much. He he loves Twitter and he hates Twitter. Um, and one of the reasons that Trump hates Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms lately uh, is that he has accused them of censoring people and showing bias on political lines and so uh this week the white house has created an excellent solution to this problem they um have built a place for people to report social media bias uh this is very strange it is a sort of web forum in which you can describe an incident in which a platform has uh shown bias in in either censoring, taking down, or uh, deprioritizing something that you posted. You can send uh, screenshots uh, along with this incident and then get it straight up to the White House. There is also a checkbox to add your name to an email newsletter, the likes of which <laughs> I'm very curious uh, to find out. Um, so obviously like this contentious relationship between the Trump administration and major tech platforms is not new. It actually goes back far longer than the Trump administration itself. Um, but there is a sort of curiosity to the timing here. Um, Facebook recently banned a handful of accounts, including that of Alex Jones and some other extremists. Um, Facebook obviously calls that like the responsible thing to do when people post hate speech, uh, but the Trump administration calls that Censorship, um, and so in part, this new tool to report bias is a response to some of these platforms like acting out and, and saying like we can't have this kind of speech on our, our platforms, and then the you know Trump administration calling that uh, conservative bias.
0: Hmm. I'm mostly curious about the newsletter.
2: I am as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting the way they they um, <laughs> the way they described it was. Um, a newsletter where people who are reporting bias on social media platforms can subscribe to this newsletter and then get updates from the White House so that the White House doesn't have to publish them on these discriminatory oh, platforms.
0: no. <laughs> so you know it would be hilarious as if it was like life hacks and book mm-hmm. reviews and there were affiliate links peppered throughout the whole thing?
3: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, this is just so bizarre on so many levels. Also the fact that they're accepting screenshots is completely bizarre, because screenshots can be doctored, they can be completely photoshopped, you can make something up that entirely is entirely false and did not happen and submit that and be like, this happened. Have we learned nothing from being on the internet the past 20 <laughs> years? Like, I don't understand. And a lot of the social platforms, their reporting tools require you to include links for that exact reason because they don't have the manpower to go through images, you know, screen screen grabs and determine what is real and what is fake. And yet the White House is going to do this? Like, I, I just also like... I would love to see like what some of these complaints are like i just it's just utterly it's utterly bizarre to me
0: and it's all hokum like if you look at facebook's list of its the most popular publishers on its platform like fox news a conservative publication is very close to the top at all times mm-hmm. and the the conservative voices that claim that they're being snuffed out aren't necessarily being snuffed out because they're conservative, they're being snuffed out because they're posting a lot of things that are objectively not true or inflammatory or hateful. Right,
2: which sets up this weird tension between a platform like Facebook or Twitter, which is (laughs) grappling with these problems all all the time Mm -hmm. and trying to take some steps toward removing some of these um, insidious posts or or accounts. but at the same time, like, if the White House calls that bias or censorship, like,
3: it, it puts them in a weird position. Yeah. yeah. Casey Newton from The Verge wrote a really great edition of his newsletter. This is, uh, let's see, we're taping this on Thursday, so this would have been Wednesday about this topic.
0: It's called The Interface. It's called The
3: Interface, his newsletter. Hi, Casey.
0: Definitely subscribe.
3: You should subscribe. It's a great newsletter. But he examined what this actually means about the idea of bias. I mean, bias at one time was considered something, like, very serious. You're sort of examining the root of where someone is coming from and the lens through which they are seeing something that could imply a type of bias. And in the cases of, you know, previous cases of, let's say, like Google and whether there's bias in search results, like it's actually sort of there's a technically rigorous process that goes into determining whether or not something is biased. And this is literally just something I don't like. This is bias is now literally like. I feel like you were mean to me on the internet. Mm-hmm. It, that's like the kind of complaints they're looking to solicit. And in the meantime, they're just gonna compile emails and then spam you with all kinds of things about how you should vote for Trump in 2020. So yeah. Um this is silly. <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. This is all <laughs> silly. I'm gonna start, you know, I'm gonna start submitting my complaints and just see what happens.
2: It, we might as well just start submitting our thoughts. Maybe some <laughs> like screenshots of cool memes. Yeah, diary entries. Yeah. Why not?
0: So what's it's a uh, it's a uh, type form form that they yes. put up is that what it is exactly yeah, yeah. you know be fun is just going in and just using it like Twitter also they <laughs> ask I believe <laughs> on the form ask if you're a citizen of the United States
3: oh yeah and, you, and one of the captcha <laughs> the captcha mechanism is asking what year the Declaration of Independence was written <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay well uh, um, oh. let's take a quick break yeah. and we'll come back with Emma Gray Ellis talking about beauty YouTube. Emma Gray Ellis is a staff writer at Wired who covers internet culture and propaganda, and her latest story is about YouTube's Beauty Wars, how two hugely popular YouTubers are at odds with one another to the point where one of them has been canceled a handful of times. Emma notes that this whole thing speaks volumes not just about the products they're selling, but how people are interpreting the YouTube influencer world as a kind of indicator of your politics or a character reference. Emma Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you just give us a quick primer on what is Beauty YouTube?
1: Ah, uh, so it's one of the oldest corners of YouTube, actually. Uh, And it all started with makeup tutorials. Mm -hmm. Um, Very simple. This is how you apply eyeshadow and eyeliner appropriately. And now has turned into a huge driver of the real-world beauty economy, where influencers make their own makeup palettes and sell them for many dozens of dollars and it's it's a billion dollar industry and it's become a huge, huge part of YouTube, but also internet culture at large.
3: How much of uh, the success of Beauty YouTube is based on personality versus the product?
1: Mm, I would say that it is largely personality, um, but there is I think over time, been a lot of pressure for influencers to have improve their products since they are not kind to each other often and will give each other savage reviews of their <laughs> of each other's products on YouTube for everyone to see. Uh, and so there's a lot of competition. It's a very competitive space.
2: Yeah, speaking of the, mm-hmm. the savagery, the story you wrote this week is, is full of intrigue. There are <laughs> vitamins and eyeshadow palettes and, Uh, loss of followers, Mm -hmm. um, cancellations, right and left. Um, (laughs) I I want you to sort of describe what happened, but first maybe uh, tell us about the characters and what they sort of represent in the beauty YouTube world at large.
1: Definitely. Um, So the primary characters are uh, Tati Westbrook, who is OG beauty YouTuber. She's been on the platform since the mid-2000s. And she's in her late 30s, and she kind of is a sort of godmother figure to the beauty community. Um, In particular, to the other main, uh, the star of the feud, which is James Charles, who's 19 years old. And he, if you've heard of him before, it may have been because he was the first ever male cover girl um, a couple years back, and has since had this meteoric rise on the platform, and at his peak had something like 17 million followers. Um, and then, uh, what happened was basically James was at Coachella, and he promoted. <laughs> all, <laughs> as as all the, Yes, James at Coachella, uh, and his side of the story is that he needed security because the VIP area was not safe, and so, because this is the world that we live in, he called up Sugar Bear Hair, which is a hair vitamin that you may have seen promoted by the Kardashians and a bunch of other big influencers, um. But that Sugar Bear hair is a competitor to Tati's brand, um, which is called Halo Beauty, which also sells a hair vitamin. This is a major betrayal in this space. Because they're Uh, friends. Because they're friends and because she was a mentor to him. And so she posts a, a tearful thing to her Instagram story about how James is a bad friend. And people started coming for him, and it snowballed into this thing that now includes allegations of sexual harassment on James's part, um, and you know a bunch of other screenshots of some that seem credible and some that are of dubious origin. And it's really hard to tell what's what all is actually going on. But it's a scandal made of hair vitamins and sexual harassment, which is two things on very different sides of the spectrum. But here we are.
3: So this is not just about the drama between these two, though, because. Mm-hmm he lost followers and that's pretty critical in the world of what these influencers do right. Yes. So talk about the actual the mm-hmm. fallout beyond the f- just you know they've sure. got some hurt
1: feelings. It has become I would say on the level of blood that It's like there's <laughs> like there is like a, a CNN article like at the very bottom of it linked to uh, a YouTube channel um, that has like a live subscriber count comparing the two, and you can watch <laughs> Tati's get fa- <laughs> subscribers rise as James fall, um, and it's it's being taken as like that's en- that's what. Entertainment is for these people in these in these like drama YouTube spaces, which people are really into. Um, and so, yes, he has lost something like three million um, followers in the last subscribers in the last couple days. And um, how, many, how many is he at now? Something like thirteen million. Last last time I checked. Wow. And so he's very much still like doing well, if you know all things being equal. But and then the other thing that's happening is that teenagers on TikTok have made a meme of destroying uh, James Charles merchandise. The I've watched a bunch of kids set makeup pallets on fire and throw them into the street or throw them into the bathtub, smash them to powder. It is there's a very performative aspect of distancing yourself from James Charles at this point.
0: So that's that's a big part of it, is that you know their accounts are tied to products that they're promoting, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're their own or if they are getting paid to promote products from other people. I'm assuming there's some sort of like affiliate play yes. where like if they promote something and Five hundred people go out and buy it, then they get a cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how much money is at stake mm. for these for these folks?
1: Uh, millions of dollars, right? And so, like James's palette is in a collaboration with the beauty brand Morphe, and the palette's been wildly popular. Um, I don't know exactly how much money it's made, but it it's on the top of the charts for sure. Um, and because um, you're the Likelihood that brands will approach you is largely determined by sort of the public perception of you, mm-hmm. um, and brands are really concerned about brand safety and that you know they're representing they're representing themselves well by working with these influencers. And so, since James's reputation has been hurt, uh, that hurts his business hugely in ways that are hard to calculate. Like, will he mix miss out on the next six figure Nike sponsorship? Like, maybe. The and so it's hard to know, but. Lots and lots of money's at stake.
3: So James has been um, canceled. Yes. Talk about cancel culture. <laughs> uh,
1: it's it's um, canceled culture cancel culture is basically um, the mechanism by which we uh, excise pop stars from, from the world at this point. Uh, and this is and I I make the comparison to pop stars deliberately. Like I James Charles is kind of Justin Biebering like, in front of us right now. It's like he's very young and having scandals. Um, but the, basically, um, news breaks that puts a influencer in a poor light, and then people decide that they no longer want to have anything to do with them, and they say that they're canceled, like a TV show is canceled. And <laughs> it comes with the expectation that people unsubscribe and stop watching their, you know, stop watching their videos or looking at their posts or whatever it is. Often, these cancellations are not permanent. And so James has been cancelled and uncanceled, mm-hmm. by my count, five times mm-hmm. the, for for a variety of different reasons. Um, mostly tweeting things that he shouldn't have tweeted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ah uh, youth ah youth yes exactly. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's hard to tell um, whether this one will stick or not. But it, the news cycle is sort of already turning, uh, and people are like, he's cancelled today, but will we care tomorrow? And like the answer is pretty much probably not. Like James Charles is going to be fine. Mm-hmm. The but cancelled culture is. Sort of whips everyone up into this frenzy and you get lots of social media harassment and then the next person gets cancelled and everyone kind of forgets about you and slowly your show gets uncancelled.
3: <laughs> is there a world in which being cancelled actually helps your career?
1: Uh, I think that notoriety certainly has helped um, some some YouTubers and people have actually asked James Charles this directly and he says of course they've helped me because I've grown as a person but there is also a monetary benefit to having a scandal it's like if everyone knows your name you're more likely to be approached by brands just because they're more likely to know who the heck you are. Like, last year, even though it was a terrible year um, for the the Paul brothers, Logan Paul and Jake Paul are two huge YouTubers who had a bunch of really major scandals, they still made... Many, many millions of dollars last year. Despite that, the and even though like Logan Paul had a scandal in February of 2018, people were like this is the worst thing. Or January, people, this is the worst thing that's ever happened on YouTube. He, there's he's done, and he made 15 million dollars or something like that. Was
0: that the uh, the dead body in Japan? He
1: filmed yeah. he filmed a dead body yeah. in the suicide forest, Ayo, Ayo Um and uh, it ultimately doesn't matter because getting your name out there in the attention economy and being able to command like. When people hate you, they're going to watch your videos anyway, and brands know that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. It is sort of par for the course in a space like Beauty YouTube (laughs) to have these kinds of faux pas turn into major scandals. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that, like, although this story has become, like, one of the greatest entertainment yes. <laughs> narratives of, of certainly the week. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, we're talking about, like, a pretty, like, minor faux pas,
1: right? Like, Right. I mean, I think that, like, if the sexual harassment allegations are credible, then that's not minor. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly promoting the wrong hair vitamin isn't something that I would really <laughs> damn someone for, uh, especially not a teenager. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, it's... These things blow up out of proportion... Um, Often and so, but there is a kind of like drumbeat. It feels like every time there's a scandal in beauty YouTube, the hi- it reaches new heights, and we're now at the point where this is a headline in the New York Times, which I would not have anticipated two years ago.
0: Is it a particularly scandal-prone corner of YouTube?
1: I think so. The there's a lot of um, they command a huge audience. Uh, and because it is personality-driven, as we've said before, a lot of the major characters in the beauty community, like uh, Jeffree Star, his brand is being shady. Like, he's a big tweeter and deleter. (laughs) He'll say something real nasty and then unsay it, and then that'll create even more drama around it. And so, like, the cast of these scandals tends to be almost the same. It's, It's akin to a reality TV show, and I think that that is obvious to people and so there's always like a little bit of a well if this scandal isn't just being done for the sake of the views then it seems bad but it's probably just being done for the sake of the views Mm. um and so i think that there's a certain cynicism
3: where does beauty youtube fall into the uh, the bigger story around the issues that youtube has around content and content moderation and algorithms Mm -hmm. i i kind of wonder if certain people know how to exploit the algorithmic system of YouTube and knowing that certain things will sort of bubble to the top of feeds, yes. if that's what's going on here.
1: Uh, I think that all of the sort of algorithmic, uh, algorithmic game- gamesmanship that happens elsewhere on YouTube definitely happens here. Um, I don't watch a whole lot of makeup tutorials, but I started seeing videos about this scandal like after a video on houseplants. Like, it's just like like totally, totally unrelated. Um, And YouTube just really, really wanted me to watch it because it has such high engagement. And so I think that these scandals have a way of being perpetuated because people are watching, and then YouTube wants more people to watch, and knows that they'll watch, uh, for example, a forty-minute video um, from Tati Westbrook explaining why she's no longer friends with a nineteen-year-old boy, um, and so like <laughs> the like that is uh, like deeply strange, but also is clearly making people a lot of money.
3: Mm-hmm. It's also good to know that in the YouTube influencer world, mm-hmm. the moment
1: you reach your late 30s, you are godmother status. <laughs> like, that's it.
3: Okay. Yeah. You've graduated. I,
1: it's it's strange. Right? Like it's, and I think this is worth mentioning too is that YouTubers are really young. Like most of the major YouTubers that are involved in these scandals are like 20 years old. The and so like this is not a community of grownups. You're watching people's like college experiences <laughs> lived out on the internet for an audience of millions, mm-hmm. and so it's going to get messy.
0: Uh, well, Emma, you know, when we have people come on the show, we mm-hmm. always ask them to uh, recommend something yeah. to the listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, un- unlike Beauty YouTube, there is no <laughs> uh, affiliate play here. This is not <laughs> sponsored. But from your heart, yes. uh, is there a, a, a book, a movie, a podcast, a slice of culture that you would like to tell our audience to check out?
1: Yes. Uh, I would like to recommend the TV show Shit's Creek is a slice of wholesome in this scandal, scandalous world. <laughs> it's the, you know, if you haven't seen it, it stars uh, Eugene Levy, who you'll remember from every 90s movie ever. And, and SCTV. Mm-hmm. And his real-life son, Dan Levy. Uh, and they play a lovely, well, no, not so lovely, uh, very rich family who falls on hard times and has to move to a a town called Shit's Creek. Shenanigans ensue, but it's all... Um, it's all Canadian, and so all the jokes come from a place of kindness. <laughs> Everyone ultimately is a good and, and fully realized person in a way that you don't often get in a sitcom. It warmed my heart. I recommend.
0: Nice. Uh, what? Where? Where is it?
1: Uh, the first bunch of seasons are on Netflix. Uh, there's an additional season on YouTube right now, and it's just been renewed for a sixth and final season, which will be streaming soon. Shits
2: Creek, not cancelled.
1: Shits Creek, the <laughs> furthest from thing from cancelled. <laughs> nice.
2: Ariel, what's yours? Um, I would like to recommend that uh, we all get Tamagotchis. <laughs> I have a Tamagotchi. They have been revived by Bandai, the Japanese company that first made them in the mid 90s, um, and they are better than ever. Uh, it, it feels and looks and sounds just like the old Tamagotchi you maybe had as a child, um, except for that the screen is now in color. Um, and, uh, your Tamagotchis can now live on for many generations. I'm actually raising my second generation Tama already. Do people call them Thomas? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I also, I, I wrote a story about the Tamagotchi revival, um, and I intend to write many more, <laughs> but, uh, I was very delighted when on Twitter, um, some people from the Tamagotchi community began, uh, following me and tweeting at me. And I'm very excited to now get extremely into the Tama world.
0: I remember those things. We had them on our keychains mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the nineties when we got our cars, you could, <sighs> you could like, you had your car keys and you were all excited cause you had a place to hang your Tamagotchi.
3: Yeah. Wow, I'm learning so many nicknames. <laughs> Tama, tamagotch. Oh my gosh!
0: It's pretty cool though. It's like kind of. It's it's egg shaped still. Mm-hmm. Like the old ones were egg shaped, so it's kind of cool that they kept that sort of plasticky vibe, even though it has so much more going on in it.
2: Do they have apps now? Uh, yes. Um, Bandai tried to reinvent Tamagotchi as an app in, like, 2013. I don't think it was very successful, and so they've gone back to the, like, retro design. Um, although they do plan to release an app later this year that enhances your Tamagotchi experience. It's
3: like a power boost. Like a power boost, yeah. <laughs> <I> like that. <laughs> I like that. I never got into Tamagotchis. Uh, they are so I did not. Oh, they're yeah.
2: so fun. I will say they are a little expensive. They were like maybe like $12 back in the 90s and now they're $60, which what, is 60? a lot of money, uh-huh. but they're really really fun.
0: Well, you know, inflation. What's
3: yours mm. name? Um,
2: well, my first one was called Tama, but with this, like, symbol that looks like a bunny in front of it, which I believe is pronounced Bunny Tama. And
0: uh, now that I'm on
2: the second generation one, um, it also has a symbol in front of its name that looks like a cake, and which is pronounced cake, and the rest of its name is U-E-D.
3: <laughs> cake U-E-D. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Uh, Lauren, what, is your, uh, what okay. is your recommendation? So
3: this week was a little bit of a tough week uh, for women, and particularly the women of the state of Alabama. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. But I was feeling like I needed a little bit of a boost. So I watched Knock Down the House on Netflix. It is a documentary that follows the path of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Paula Jean Swearingen, I hope I'm saying that, Properly, uh, Amy Vallella and Cori Bush. And these are all uh, progressive women who were running for um, seats in Congress in 2018. Uh, spoiler alert, not all of them were successful, but um, it's an amazing behind the scenes documentary. It largely follows... Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Also, spoiler alert, at this point, you all know that she won, so I'm not really telling you anything <laughs> that you don't know. But there's this amazing scene at the end when she is actually en route to the, it's some sort, type of billiards hall um, where she's having, you know, all of her staffers are waiting for her. And she, at that point, she's either going to have a, a celebration party or a consolation party, and she doesn't really know. And she's asked everybody in the car with her to turn off alerts on their phones because she actually doesn't want to see the news. She's not checking the news. She's so nervous that she doesn't want to know. And she happens to glance out the window when she's from the car and she sees the press running towards her party. And she goes, oh my God, I just saw something. I I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it. And someone in the car is like, what'd you see? And she's like, I, I saw the press running to my party. And that's literally how she knew she won. Wow. And, and then she, you know, it's like, I, it's, it's really emotional, and I highly recommend you watch it I and mean, watch it to the end because it's the best part. Um, but it gave me a little bit of hope. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I co sign. I've seen it too. Yeah.
0: And it's on Netflix?
3: On Netflix. It's incredibly powerful.
0: All right. Uh, well, my recommendation, much like yours, Ariel, is also a throwback to the 1990s. Um, this week, the New York Times had this big package about Generation X, and they had a bunch of great stories. Uh, the best one for me that i have to recommend is the profile of evan dando so evan dando was (laughs) still is but was the um the primary member of the band the lemonheads in the 1990s they were like a kind of like a poppy grungy band they were on 120 minutes and then mtv the reason they were popular was not necessarily their music although their music is pretty good it's because evan dando is a astonishingly good looking guy. And I was probably like, I was programmed to hate him pretty early on because he was so good looking. And like all of my friends, like my female friends in college were all just like absolutely completely in love with Evan Dando. Um, I couldn't figure it out at the time. I think I figured it out. It's he has, he had a raging drug problem and he was obviously very like emotionally troubled. So like good looking guy, square jaw, you know, long hair, dresses cool and has a bunch of problems. He's a total fixer upper. <laughs> he's the kind of he's the kind of guy that like a woman looks at him and they're like I would be good for him. <laughs> you know? So, The Lemonheads kind of fizzled out because they pinned all their hopes on his looks driving the band's success and they kind of haven't really done much in the last 20 years. Now Evan Dando is 52. Uh, He is still doing drugs, and he is living uh, in a trailer on Martha's Vineyard, uh, where his family has a farm. So this story catches up with Evan Dando and hangs out with him in his trailer. And the writer talks to him about the old days, and he tells a bunch of stories about getting high and like doing a bunch of acid in... Uh, Australia and getting arrested because he went to the airport to get on a plane and he didn't—he wasn't even booked to travel that day. Um, and he also talks about like his friendships and his failed relationships with you know Hollywood people. Uh, and he talks about what he's up to now. And this made me go back and like listen to some of the output that Evan Dando and the Lemonheads have had in the last decade or so. It's all pretty good. And I really like it. So, if you're a fan of like '90s music, or if you were ever a fan of Evan Dando, or if you just want a absolutely bonkers, crazy drug story read, highly recommended. And if you like the story, go back and listen to some of the most recent Lemonhead stuff. I think you'll find something you like.
3: Lemonheads never did it for me. Evan, Evan Dando never did it for me.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. so good looking though.
3: I don't. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think I was like I was more into Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Kirk Cobain. Yeah, sure. But the Lemonheads were just. Talk about a fixer upper. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the 25th anniversary of his death.
0: Yeah, Kurt it Cobain, was. Which is crazy. It I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Literally.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: One of those moments. Yeah,
3: but not Evan Dando. I don't know.
0: That was the thing. Everybody thought that he was going to be the next one to go.
3: Right. And right. he's
0: still around. So, that's pretty remarkable. Which is
3: actually pretty remarkable. Like Scott Weiland is no longer around and Chris right. Cornell is no longer around right. and Kirk Cobain and everybody from the 90s yeah. grunge slash pop scene. Yeah. Although a lot of them would be offended Plain as pop. Right, oh right.
0: But it was popular music. It defined culture for a very brief grungy moment. <laughs> everybody had corduroy.
3: <laughs> well, that's a funny thing about Evan Dando too from the profile,
1: like he's still pretty grungy.
0: Oh yeah, 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 he dresses exactly the yeah. same. I love it,
1: I love it. <laughs> Um,
0: Emma, how can people find you on Twitter?
1: They can find me at Emma Gray Ellis. Gray is spelled with an E.
0: What about you, Lauren?
1: I'm at Lauren Good with an E.
2: I am at Pardesoteric, which also has an E in it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am at Stackbite. And uh, you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab. That is the Twitter feed for us and the team and the show. And if you have words for Emma, we'll forward them to her. We promise. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. We'll be back. Next week with more Lemonheads news.
3: Dads and grads, dads and grads. I just got an email that's like, dads and grads, you know, stop it.
0: <laughs> there was an Easter egg. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing the Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.